everyone, and welcome to this brand new edition of the Provcast. My name is Court Marley, and I am the host for this week's edition. And I'm joined with Corey Elder, um, who is here, one of our former elders, and uh, going to be rolling back on our elder board in a few months. Most of you know Corey. Some of you may not. Corey, welcome to the Provcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, and I guess happy birthday to you, by the oh, way. Some, yeah. some of you guys may not know we're recording on, on Court's birthday. So he uh, he's working on his birthday. So It's my Jesus year this year, 33 <laughs> years old. Yeah. So in Jesus' last year. So it's a little bit of a bad omen. No, I'm going to be well, watching out on Passover. We're going to work really hard to get out of it if we can. <laughs> so uh, glad to have you here, Corey. I'm excited about um, our conversation today. So for those who may not know you, obviously a lot of our listeners, most of our listeners um, know you. And um, they have uh, been here as you've served as one of our elders and served on our preaching team. Uh, but we got a lot of new members too. Obviously, COVID um, it's just such a weird thing cr- created, you know, mass chaos where we couldn't get together. And so maybe you just introduce yourself to those who uh, don't know you all that well or don't know you at all. Tell us a little bit about uh, you and your family and how you came into Christ, maybe a, story, a little story like that. Uh, and then um, share how you came to Providence. Yeah. So, uh, like you said, I'm, my name is Corey Elder. I've been at Providence, I think, since around 2014-ish. Um, my wife, Leah, uh, is here along. I've got three, three children, Jonah, Micah, and Grace. And then we've got a bunch of animals at home, three cats, and a, <laughs> and a brand-new eight-week-old puppy named Maverick, a little mall sheep poo. So if you're in the market for a puppy, I would suggest a, a mall sheep poo. But, uh, you know, how we found Providence, we had uh, grown up. My wife and I both grew up in a little town called Hull, and which is just east, I think, of Liberty. Uh, about 400 people, 500 people in the town. And when we first got married, we bought a house there, and that, that's where we lived. And uh, we served in various capacities of the churches we attended at the time. We had just, shortly before coming to Providence, we had just finished uh, serving as what we called youth leaders or student leaders at a church in Liberty and uh, had, a, had an opportunity at that point to either stay there in membership since we weren't on paid staff we were volunteering and basically what the church had decided to do was bring in a paid worship slash student leader which right. is such a baptist thing to do <laughs> we do that all the time but um when they brought him in we kind of had an opportunity to either stay there uh, or to begin to look around and try to find something a little different that that maybe we had you know we had been looking for uh from a church perspective so my parents had at that time had just built a house in huffman and uh, my brother, who's a pastor at an Acts 29 church in Round Rock called Redeemer, had seen a post on the city, which if you've been around for a while, you remember mm-hmm. the city. Throwback. RIP the city. And uh, the post on the city had basically alluded to a new church that was being planted in Atascacita called Providence Community Church. And, and my brother called my parents and said, hey, you guys are looking for a church. You're moving to a new area. You guys should check this place out. Uh, at the time, Providence was meeting at 4 o'clock in the afternoons at APC. <laughs> So Lee and I attended the church we were members of that morning, and we came with my parents that evening, and we've pretty much been here ever since. Which uh, wasn't your first uh, gathering uh, that you attended uh, our first elder installation? Yeah, so the very first thing that we saw was an elder installation <coughs> with uh, yourself, obviously, and Art, and uh, Butch Holmes, which some of you guys will remember Butch, and that was, you know, a really for me it was a really good time to to come on because it was it told me a lot of what I needed to know about how the church was structured the way the church believed from a leadership perspective and we got all of that in the first you know hour and a half that we were with you guys so 
Uh, we stayed after that. We continued to attend in the afternoons. I uh, had a conversation with my pastor that we had at home at the time and then kind of told him you know, what our intentions were, and he understood. He knew that that was a possibility. So uh, we chose to join the church at that point in time and, and come over and, and eventually, frankly, ended up selling our home in Hull and buying a home in Atascacita and moving this way uh, to be a part of you know, the community that, that is and that was and is, I guess, still Providence Community Church. Yeah, and I, I remember at the time, obviously, trying to sell your house was tough. Um, buying a house here was tough, but the Lord just opened some pretty awesome doors for you guys to find a house, and you know that was really that was really a cool time. Um, just just watching how the Lord brought you guys here. Yeah, we had no idea how we would manage to sell a home in a town of four or five hundred people. <laughs> uh, there's only a, a very small percentage of, of people that are moving to that kind of town, and that's it's typically people that are from there or people that are looking to get away from wherever they are at the time. And and we had frankly we had had it on the market in the past, like shortly before um, all of this happened, maybe six eight months, and never even had a showing. Never got a bite. Nobody came by. Uh, we listed this house um, to sell this time to move this direction for the purpose of joining up and being more available to be a part of the church. And um, within like six weeks, we had a full price offer in the household. There were a couple of other strange things that went on uh, from survey perspective. Or, but at the end of the day, all of those logistical things that jumped up that threatened to squash the the sale of the home actually were, were were removed and some of them in a fairly miraculous way by the lord so it was pretty clear at that time that he had created a, uh, a path for us to get here and then buying our house was interesting too because we didn't know you know at the, at the time we didn't know what we could afford where we could land we didn't know a whole lot about the area and i believe it was you actually yeah. that sent me it wasn't even a listing it was just a bunch of random pictures of a house right across the street here in atascacita timbers that uh, friends of yours were tr- had been renting and were trying to sell, and uh, we were able to contact those guys and make a deal, and we made our way over here. Yeah, that was even. I think it was off the market too because I got a text message from a, cu- a couple that that Morgan and I knew from our time in Nederland, <clears throat> and um, when we were student pastors there, and um, and just a text message that said, "Hey, uh, you know, we we want to sell our house." They had moved down to the Heights and they had a house here in Tuscaloosa. We want to sell our house, but you know, we know you you have. Uh, you know, a lot of young families. We wanted to let you know first in case there were any young families that, you know, were looking for a house before we put it on the market. And so uh, I was like, I do know. But I remember when I sent it to you at first, it was actually on the front end before you had finalized the offer. You were like, I like this house. It's really great. But, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to do move on anything until we sell this house. Yeah. Matter of fact, our the first conversation that Lee and I had with, um, with the folks that own the home was at the time, realtors weren't even involved. I mean, it was, it was that early. And the first conversation we had with them was around uh, purchasing the home and potentially renting ours in whole, renting it to someone because we just didn't, the uncertainty was, there was a lot of uncertainty there. So, and it worked for us from, a, even from a job perspective, we didn't have to worry about, you know, trying to change jobs. My wife at the time was a nurse. She was uh, working at a hospital in Beaumont, or actually maybe at that time she wasn't working at all. Uh, I, I have trouble keeping up with the ebbs and flows of, of her employments, but um one way or another, my job was in Mont Bellevue. I, I currently and still am in Mont Bellevue with Exxon Mobil. And so making the, the change from a 45 minute commute from Hull to Mont Bellevue to a 45 minute commute from Itasca City to Mont Bellevue didn't create any, any kind of churn or any change in, in life situation. So just everything was, was easy. It was lined up and we were able to, to get over here and, and plug in. Yeah. 
Okay, tell me a little bit about, I know it's your day off, you don't have to talk much about it. Tell us about uh, your job. Yeah, so I am, uh, as I mentioned before, I'm working, I work for ExxonMobil for the pipeline company. I've been, I'm in my 14th year right now. I've done a couple different things. Started off as an operator uh, at the Mont Bellevue facility and left from there, went to our Friendswood group and did some regulatory work from an environmental type perspective. And in October of 2018, went back to the Mont Bellevue facility as operations supervisor there. So we do underground storage. It's a long boring story but basically in the in the earth created in the earth or, or over time in the earth uh, there are salt deposits basically a big salt rock in certain parts of there's three prominent ones in texas there's a lot of smaller ones that they were used back in the oil field days and um, basically somebody somebody really smart figured out that you could drill down into these formations you could inject water in order to absorb salt and create a cavern in the formations and then inject hydrocarbon in there for storage that you could then get in or out by injecting the brine water or, or super you know water with a very high salinity that came out of the well in order to put it in or take it out so i know that's a lot of a lot of boring stuff and maybe <laughs> maybe reference jenna vaccaro for more details on the actual <laughs> engineering because she may understand it a little better than i but that's what we manage we've got seven wells at mont bellevue about seven total of seven million ish barrels uh, of storage there and uh, I do a lot of work and I put in a lot of hours uh, to make <laughs> sure that place runs correctly I got really good guys that work for me it's it's been a blessing going over there and being able to to take that position so that's pretty much consumes my Monday through Friday and sometimes my weekend too depending on what's going on <laughs> and you took that position uh, a couple years ago right 2000 in 2019 yes yeah, because so you were working at Friendswood before that well I started uh, effective date was October 1 of 2018 uh, okay. we started talking about it as you'll remember you and I started kicking it around kind of discussing the the feasibility of it probably June or July of that year is when it first came across it's crazy across it's been that plane. long yeah, it was. It's. It's. <laughs> I thought about that the other day. I'm coming up on three, three years, years back there, which is crazy. Wow. Okay, so uh, obviously you, uh, you and Leah were able to move your whole family from you know from Hull come over here. Uh, how did you find yourself in eldership? You know, uh, coming into a church plant because you guys came at the APC days. Uh, for those of you who don't know, that's you really early on at, at Providence. You know, we met at APC for evenings, made the move to. AHS at Tessita High School um, for morning gatherings where we were doing setup and teardown and then we came here uh, I think about six years ago now when we renovated this place and so um, yeah maybe maybe walk everyone through your journey from hey just uh, coming over and being a a member of a church plant to uh, serving for I think three or four years as an as an elder yeah so initially when we first came into membership at Providence, I think the church was a year, maybe a year and a half old, which those of you that were around at the time will remember uh, the setup teardown process every week. I mean, it was a, it was a lot. And there was a lot of good things that came out of that, but buddy, it was nice to walk away from it when we went to Sunday mornings. <laughs> Definitely. Basically the way it started was, you know, the, the philosophy of the church groups, you know, j join a go team, things that we do, or at the time it was called a go team. It right. Serve somewhere was what we call it now, but uh, coming out of our membership class, and even before our membership class, I joined the the setup teardown team. My dad and I both actually joined that team, and uh, we would come over and and push carts that were full of stuff and set up children's rooms and and coffee and all the stuff in the lobby in the afternoon to get ready to go. And through that, was able to build some relationships with some guys. One of those guys was Butch Holmes, and you really can't. You and I talk about this all the time, but you really can't talk about the history of this church without mentioning Butch Holmes. No he, doubt, he's all over it. One of the he's a great guy, um, and 
got to know him and actually joined his home group in the Huffman home group because at the time we were still commuting from Hull. So we were driving in 45 minutes, driving home 45 minutes. And yeah. what made the most sense from home group perspective was for us to stop on the other side of the lake rather than, than continuing across. So was able to join Butch Holmes home group and through that, uh, you know, developed a pretty, pretty good relationship with him, had the opportunity to uh, get to know him pretty well and, and getting to know you throughout that time, Brendan at the time also. And uh, from there, uh, I don't even remember how long it was really, but after a period of time, uh, we were getting ready to move to Sunday mornings, I believe is, is how it went at Atascacita High School at the time. And uh, I ended up from that coming on staff as sort of a volunteer type coordinator at the time because we were, yep. we were we were in a new place where – structure was having to change scheduling was going to be a nightmare trying to figure out what that looked like and and i took hold of that and managed it as best i could until i was able to hand it to somebody that was better at it than i was <laughs> uh from there uh moved in and and oversaw groups ministry for a while uh did did the best i could there to try to you know build and help build our home group structure training leaders and things of that nature and through that process at some point in time you guys reached out and we we started looking at eldership which at the end of the day eldership has a large percentage of it that's about capacity and the ability to work the ability to do the job but more so than that along with all of those gifts and abilities there has to be there has to be a calling right and i i had served in the past as you know, like i said in student ministry and in but in for the most part in smaller churches i had a you know i and because of that, I knew that there was a calling on, on my life to be in, in leadership and pastoral leadership. And so once that conversation began to happen, it was a pretty, pretty easy transition into, into a position as an elder here. Yeah. And I think, I think if I remember correctly at that time, you had, <clears throat> you'd been leading a home group for a while yourself, you know, and not only leading the home group minute, like home groups, uh, from the director position, but also leading a home group at your house that had multiplied out another home group at the time. Like yeah, I, I missed that that whole piece of the story, multiplying that home group from Huffman and moving it over to Lori and Oscar's house on, mm-hmm. on Village Grove, Village yep. Grove home group. And from that point, we had multiplied. At that point, we multiplied once, and then that home group moved to my house in Atascacita and multiplied again, and uh, then it multiplied again. So it, it was a, a raucous group. We had a lot of small kids sort of at the end of the day, it was <laughs> – it was the beginning of what we have now. Right, and I was about to say it, nothing's changed. That's it's just right. Continued with with the the procreation rate here at Providence. It was the <laughs> the beginning of that, and uh, also had some some you know families that are the age I am now. You know, late thirties that had kids that are the age that mine are now, ten, seven, and five, and we would jam them into that house. And and when I say we had a bunch of kids, I'm talking like. 10 to 17 maybe even as high as 20 sometimes mm. and groups of them came with two parents it was it was a lot wow. and uh, we we enjoyed it it was a good time but yeah that was obviously that's part of the story also we we, we did lead home groups for a while and, and really enjoyed doing that at the time yeah you know i didn't even intend to to, to talk about this but I, you know maybe it maybe it might be helpful but that time was simultaneously like a lot of joy a lot of fun a lot of craziness and also tough because not only would you have you know trying to operate and have gospel community with you know lots of people lots of kids little space but then even whenever you multiplied it wasn't like 
even though you, you fixed the space issue, you also had a, a break of relationship that was tough. Um, because obviously people build relationships, they get tight knit, and then now we're going to multiply off, and I'm not, my kids have to now reform into another group, right. and you know, and that's always been something that we've battled is like that tension of that which is practical and that and that which is a, uh, you know, relational, and it's tough. Yeah, it, home groups reach a point where um, they are not able to be properly managed when they reach a, a certain number, and I say that because it's a, it's a reality. In a lot of instances, maybe you would think that that's probably something that we shouldn't discuss, but in my opinion, it's something we should discuss more. Uh, The number one way to burn out a home group leader is to jam 35 people into their house once a week after they worked an 8- to 10-hour workday. That that happens. And I tell the story quite often that I can remember in those days when everything was was so, um, so tight. There were so many people, and it was such a big ordeal. Uh, to do once a week that I can remember driving home from work pulling into my driveway because I would get home about the time home group started so at that at that point in time I was working uh, shift work which I had a 12-hour shift yep. so I'd come in from the uh, from the day shift and I could remember pulling in my driveway and seeing my entire street full of cars and knowing that all of those people that came in those cars they were in my house they weren't anywhere else they were at my place <laughs> and having to sit in the car for a few minutes and breathe and collect myself and then walk in and and lead the home group. And I say all that to say that the difficulty um, is not something that should be lost on us, right? We should see that. And to your point, multiplication was hard in a lot of times because we didn't multiply uh, based off of any factor other than than size and and logistics. And that makes it, that makes it tough to manage. And at the time, I don't know that I even being new to that church, you know, being new to the home group model coming in and kind of figuring out as I go, there were a lot of times that I, I don't think that I even had the the tools to try to say, hey, how do I how do I manage this both spiritually and, you yeah. know, um, relationally with these people? How do we how do we do this and how do we do it right? You know, and that, so that that became that was a point of tension at the time. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and I'm not sure that it, it goes away. You know, it, it, it continues to be one and, um, it's, you know, years of, <clears throat> years of, uh, working through it and walking through it. I still don't think that I've gotten to a place where I'm like, yeah, I got the silver bullet on how to fix that. Uh, because at the end of the day, there's, there is, um, tension on either end and that there's, uh, that difficulty can lead to some heartache. So on one end, it's like relationally. So like you, you pull up to your house, there's lots of people there and you're like, oh my gosh, how am I going to deal with this because it's not just on the front end i mean what you know is and we enjoy this by the way it's it's good but but it's we're just talking realities here what you know is then when everybody finally leaves at 9 30 or 10 you know the last person kind of pulls out then there's the, the you know the chaos that you still have to do with cleaning up and kind of like winding back down and then your family's still the reality of your family you know and you know you and i both have uh, kids that are adopted and so you know they got to go to school the next morning yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, with, with our kids, they need some, they need routines and they need structure a little more than, you know, the average kid. Um, and so then, you know, the next day there might be a, you know, uh, what a sad face on the, on the kindergarten folder. And so now you got to deal with that. And, (laughs) and so there's all of these other impacts, but I think what, what we have dealt with both on the elder, like the pastor level, and then, and I think our home group and our care deacons deal with is, but then you also know there's the real relationships that you really care about people and you really yep. care about their kids. And so you know that if it's just like this harsh, like, hey, it's not practical, therefore it has to, you know, be be multiplied, that there's going to be a lot of tension there too. And I don't know that there's a silver bullet answer. 
except to discuss the realities, which is why I thought, hey, it might be good to bring it up. Yeah, and I think that the relationships is what what makes it hard. If we're merely transactional in our relationships with one another, it's very easy to sit down and, and create a five bullet point plan for why we're going to multiply and you're going to lead it because you're whoever because you're up next and uh see you guys when i see you go on <laughs> go on and, and perform you know the mission of, of the gospel and of the church right but, but it, you're right the relationships are what makes that hard and, and you constantly feel like you know we constantly felt like we were being torn from one relationship to another and it was happening quickly now uh, one thing i do want to mention because i know that some home group leaders could potentially be listening to this and they are probably resonating at some level. Right. Some of them, not all of them, but some of them are probably resonating with it. And I want to point out that I can remember going with you guys. We all went to an Acts 29 uh, conference, basically an equipping conference. I don't remember what year that was, a few years ago. Mm. And I specifically at the time went to a group that was led by one of the executive directors of Acts 29 on home groups or house churches or whatever your term is, right. parishes, whatever the term is for the different churches. And somebody, it wasn't me, someone else asked this specific question. How do we manage this issue, the one you and I are talking about? And I remember that executive director who at the time I figured this is excellent. I have a notebook out. This guy's going to give me a, a silver bullet answer. We're going to fix it. And he literally looked back and said, I don't know. Right. And that's all he said. And I think the whole room was kind of like, oh, that's absolutely not what we were hoping <laughs> that you were going to deliver. And he went on to expound on that and say that anyone that tells you that they figured that out has, uh, they haven't really figured it out. It's working for now, but they will eventually reach a point in time where it doesn't work. And that's why I think home groups and, and relationships in general, you know, within the church, they're necessary, but they also take um, constant work and, and almost evolution in the process. Because the thing is, if you nail it down, you nail home group structure down when you have a bunch of babies, in a few years, you've got to rethink home group structure when you've got a bunch of, you know, children that's right and then you got to rethink it again when you've got a bunch of teens and then you've got to rethink it again when you're ready to launch those teens into young adulthood that's right so it's it's a consistent evolution so if at any point in time this is my opinion maybe someone else would disagree but at any point in time if anyone thinks that someday there's coming a formula for home groups and or and i'll I'll throw this in there because it's also true and or relationships within the church close relationships um, that's going to fix all of these problems and someday we'll get it right, you know, like the church down the street. I promise you it's never going to happen. <laughs> and the church down the street doesn't have it right either. That's right. It just looks like it. Yeah, and maybe and maybe it's okay for as it is right now, you know. Like you said, right. it's working for what what's working right now for them uh, or for us. But we all have to be okay with the fact that that doesn't mean it's going to work forever as, as we've planned it, as we've prepared it. If, if there's one thing I've learned from pastoring and planting, it's that, your plans can be great and they should be there. Your strategy should be there. And you should just go ahead and accept right now that it's not going to happen the way that you think it's going to happen and be okay with that. And and then learn to trust the Lord, adjust, um, approach every day with dependency. You know, that's one thing that I think it does create is for communities to come together and recognize that there's not easy answers. Because if you, if you only see it from your perspective, it creates the disunity. It creates the discord. It creates like, well, you, we should just stay as we are or we should you know or we should just multiply and be about the mission and then you got these two factions you know and that you could talk about that forever how that's created in the church but the conversation admitting that it's not like it's not black and white it's not easy actually breeds uh humility and then i think relational harmony because people can say you know what like it's not gonna be perfect you know whatever we decide to do and whatever we feel like the lord's leading us to do and whatever like the leaders make that tough decision 
that we're going to be okay because the Lord will be with us. There's not an easy answer. That actually allows for a lot more mercy and grace. Well, and, and that in and of itself is an important point because what it also does is it drives back to dependency on the Lord right. to, to have it function in a, in a fruitful way. If we had all the answers and we could do it all ourselves and get it exactly how we want it and people would grow and all those things, there would really be no need to spend a ton of time as a leader in any level, whether home group leader or uh, you know elder level, really praying and seeking the Lord in that ministry because, hey, that thing's working great. We have all the, but I feel like, I don't feel like I know that sometimes the Lord creates that level of uncertainty, creates that level of chaos and still brings fruit from it, but it drives us deeper into a dependency on him to create that fruit because in the in the heart and the mind of the leader there is no way that the leader can believe he's doing that on his own because right. it's it's a tornado right so I, I think that um i think that's an important distinction and we need we need to always remember that yeah and he gets the glory you know when it's like when it's that way and it's not us in our structure that we created you know and and, here, and i'm a big proponent of strategizing and, and thinking it through and trying to i think that's all necessary mm-hmm. There's a really good book called The Trellis and the Vine where the, this, uh, these authors talk about um, if, if the vine would be fruitful ministry, you know, um, Jesus is the vine where the branches, you know, so the, the, the ministry itself is this kind of plant. It needs the trellis in order to grow appropriately or it's just a mess of vines, right? It's just a mess of leaves. So you need the structure um, in order for, but the structure needs to serve the purpose of the vine. <laughs> and, uh, there seems to be kind of a, uh, a combating in the church of like, you know, we're just going to be organic, but organic means a mess of leaves on the ground that never really grow. And so they, they don't get pruned. They don't, nothing happens in order to actually facilitate the growth on the flip side. Some of us, we just want to have beautiful trellises that never get re reshaped, never get reformed, never get, uh, torn down in order to build for the, for the future. They're just, we love how they look and there's no vine on it. Right. And so it's like, we have to have both. Yeah, I mean, I mean, strategizing and planning is responsible, right? That's what the Lord expects. But I always compare these types of things to, to preaching, uh, because how great would it be to have the gift to not have to prepare and just show up on Sunday morning, open your Bible, and preach an eloquent sermon? Right. That's an impossible thing to do. The Lord requires that we sit down, we study, we prepare, we outline, we build it, we rehearse it, we do all the things that ca- that create all the hours of work prior. And then guess what? Sometimes you still get up there and it's a dud <laughs> and it's bad. Right. You know what I mean? And and I, <laughs> I think that I, I compare what we're talking about right now to that because the strategizing and the planning is faithful work that is expected of us. But sometimes the result doesn't necessarily reflect what you've put into it, but the Lord still uses it. I mean, I know you've experienced this before. You preach a sermon that, that you come out of there and you're thinking, that was awful. <laughs> and then you talk to somebody that says, man, that's exactly what I needed this morning. The Lord spoke to me through you. And you're thinking, how in the world Yeah, did and it encourages happen? you. Like, thank God. How did that happen? It's, yeah. a, it's the Lord creating a re- reliance on him in you in that moment. Uh, despite the fact that you're still uh, tasked with, with planning and preparing and getting ready to go do that work. Yeah. It's like uh, to, to use an old Butch Holmes saying, he used to say, you know, uh, we can't make the wind blow, but we, we're responsible to put up the sails. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I always thought that's a great, that's a great way to look at it. It's like, okay, we, we know as Christians, we ought to know that not just fruitful ministry, but the Christian life doesn't move forward on the wind of our own ambitions and efforts, but on the wind that the spirit blows. So we're reliant upon God for all of these things. But, but 
that we also have a responsibility in our sanctification to work with God by, and I'm not, I don't mean this in salvation. I mean, in sanctification, we work with God by putting the sails up Yeah, and putting the sails up is preparation. It's systems, it's structures, it's, you know, it's prayer, it's seeking God's face, you know? And I think that when we get so, uh, infatuated with our own abilities is whenever we fail to do that, or we, or we think that we don't really need the wind. Right, because there, there's even in putting up the sails, there's an element of reliance on the Lord. Because right. you, you have got to have a clear picture of the fact that you continuing to use that analogy that the very strength and ability that you have to put up those sails was right. given to you by the Lord. Absolutely, and it's a stewardship issue. How are yep. you using that strength? You know, I wanted to t- to talk a little bit about leadership. Um, <coughs> obviously, you uh, you served as an elder for I think three or four years. Yeah, um, in there. Three or four years. Um, and then not just in different functions like home group director, and uh, but also a part of the preaching team, uh, part of the preaching rotation, uh, ser- serving in uh, preaching and teaching in our men's ministry, things like that as well. Um, wanted to just ask you, kind of walk through your experience leadership-wise. I mean, maybe like experience experience being a leader and then uh, with, with COVID and everything that's happened. I mean, I think it was February or January, January of 2020 that you took a little a, a sabbatical. Yeah, January, yep. Uh, and then February, we sent out an email saying, hey, Corey's going to be rolling off the elder team. And then I remember because I think like the week that I sent that, my wife and I went to Kyrgyzstan mm-hmm. uh, for our for our bonding trip with Jane. And then when we came back, that Sunday was the first Sunday we got closed down for COVID. Yeah. So maybe walking through like, you know, uh, your experience with leadership, what, what brought you to taking a sabbatical, kind of making the call at the beginning of 2020, like, hey, I'm going to take some time. Yeah, so my – Overall, looking back on it now, hindsight being 2020, my experience in leadership was actually really good. Um, I, there were some things with me personally, particularly with my, um, how do I, I'm trying to figure out how to word this, but my personal devotion time and pursuit of the Lord that, that got muddied a little bit in there. And, and I'll, I'll speak to that for a second. I think the last year, the year of 2018 was the last year that I carried a really heavy preaching load in Providence. And I said this the other night, and I, it's hard to, to imagine because it feels like yesterday, but the last time I preached here was January of 2019. I know. When you said that, I was like, that's not true. That's and then so I looked crazy. it up, and it was right. I was like, but, wow. But in that year of 2018, I think, and don't quote me on this because it could be wrong, so don't fact check me, but I, just based on my notes and what I've got in my folder, I think I preached something like 24 or 25 sermons that year. I think you were out on sabbatical. There were some right. other things that went on, and I picked up a little bit of that load which I was happy to do I mean I, I love I love to preach I feel like you know it's it's something that I that gives me life spiritually it, it, it invigorates me and encourages me but what happened not just in that year but what had been happening in previous years that I didn't recognize was that every waking moment that I spent in the word that I spent um, studying praying getting to know the Lord I I was doing all of those things uh in such a way as though they would help me preach, right? So, so for instance, my schedule is pretty wild. Got long work hours, got family, got all these responsibilities. So when I would sit down and say, okay, I, I, need, to, I need to spend some time with the Lord, I would do that by preparing, preparing sermons, preparing to preach. So I, I say all this to paint a picture that while the leadership was a 
was a really positive thing and I enjoyed it and, and clearly enjoy it because we're, we're back to talking, you know, talking about getting back into it. There were some personal mistakes I think that I made in my own health, my own spiritual health. And, and frankly, to be honest with everyone in my own physical health that created the perfect storm that when things went south quickly, um, I've, I very quickly began to feel overwhelmed and, and the over, the overranging thought process in my mind was like, I can't, I cannot do this anymore. I can't yeah. manage it because I can't do it well. And that started, um, you know, I think the catalyst for the events that, that brought us to the eventual me rolling off started in early 2018 with the fire marshal coming into the building, shutting everything down and basically displacing us while you were on yeah. sabbatical uh, you were gone at the time. Um, but as I've kind of spent some time with the Lord and thought through this, it actually started well before that because I was not at a healthy place at that time. And honestly, didn't even recognize it uh, from a spiritual perspective. Real but, quick. How do you think? So I, I think you could probably speak to this. We were talking a little bit before we started about, you know, some of the things that you experienced, I think are really common. Like mm -hmm. I think they're really common for both men and women, but um, just, just leaders. Uh, I can't tell you how many times. I've heard this. I also experienced it, um, like like burnout. Yeah. And then you kind of look back and you're like, oh, I didn't notice the signs of that when they were happening until it was critical mass. And I think you're even articulating that now. But burnout's like a weird, like, it's kind of like one of those words that's, uh, it's hard, hard to define. And I think maybe like you have a good perspective right now. Like, what do you think like is happening in those early days? Do you think it's just kind of, hey, you're going through the motions and you don't recognize it, and so little small decisions, you know, they just culminate later or, um, you know, because nobody wakes up in the morning if they're, if they're going to, you know, join a teaching team or preaching team and says, you know what I want to do? I want to get to the place where I'm only reading my Bible to preach. And we know that. Right. And, but, but then we look back and we see, like, ah, oh, that's what was happening. Like, when you look back on that, what do you think? Because I try, I've tried to define that in myself, like, what? What's actually happening that I think that that's okay, or maybe I'm just totally blinded to it? Well, I, I don't think that you get that anyone ever gets to that point on purpose. Like no. all of us, and I, I can speak directly for myself, but I know you guys well enough also to know for providence that all of us desire to please the Lord in our work that he's given us and that he's called us to. Um, honestly, I think the, the primary way that you get yourself there is just by grinding. Yeah. Like we don't we tend to and I don't want to let me don't paint let me not paint with a broad brush here I tend to not see that until it's happening because I'm task oriented you could throw a list of 50 things in front of me right now and say hey can you help me with these things because I need these I need you to take care of these and even though I know that it's impossible for me to do those 50 things and do them all well I'm still going to take that list and say yeah I'm, I'm good I'll go do that and the function, you know, we're talking specifically about the function of, of all of your time in the Word and all of your time with the Lord being to prepare sermons or, or even, you know, boil it down for home group leaders, to lead home groups and things like that. The function of that taking place is because there's no other room in your life or your schedule for rest. Right. There's nowhere to find that. I, I can't remember at one point legit having the thought and thinking, the only time that I'm ever going to have to rest and just spend time with the Lord is if I get up at three o'clock in the morning. Wow. That's a true story. And I tried that for a few days. And let me just tell you something about human nature, unless you're Jocko waking up. <laughs> <laughs> some of you won't get that reference, but uh, That's accurate. Google it. Waking up at three o'clock in the morning to do anything is, is insanity. Mm -hmm. It's not natural. 
And I remember trying that. And at that point, that didn't it didn't set off any alarm bells for me. I just thought, hey, Corey, you, you gotta you gotta man up, suck it up, and do what you do what you have to do. Do what you're uh, do what you've committed to do. Which for me is a big thing. I, I'm I'm pers- you know my personal the, I hold myself accountable for the things that I I commit to do. And what ends up happening is when I commit to something and then I cannot adequately do that which I committed to, I begin to crumble because all of the sudden the very next voice that I hear is not that, hey, Corey, in that one particular task at that one time, like you didn't, you really overcommitted, you should probably correct that. I don't hear that. What I hear is you're not qualified for this at all. Mm. Like you don't need to be doing this at all. Like you, you have, you have misinterpreted that which you've been told and you just need to go do something else yeah and i think that's the case with any of us that reach a point in burnout and that, that's not specific to the lay elder this is the thing not at all this is very important distinction that i think people need to understand in the church it's not specific to the lay elder because it's not driven by the fact that there's a secular job tied to the ministerial job the weight of pastoring is heavy the conversations that you have, not all of them, but a lot of them, as a pastor, particularly even in the full-time ministry, are heavy. It is a large ask of people to not only bear the burdens that a pastor will deal with personally, because he's got the same problems that everyone else has, wife, family, things going on outside, but to also bear the burdens for others in the church, which is something that we joyfully do, right? We're called to that, but, but at the same time, not just bear them, but be the guy that is expected to help fix them and sometimes you just can't right and i think that leads to burnout a lot of times in the ministry my my specific my specific instance was everything that i just explained added to the fact that i was working outside the home my wife was working outside the home my kids were reaching an age at that point in time where um they were no longer babies they needed not that babies don't need attention, but as your children get older, they need more from you, different types of attention. Right. And I was coming home at the end of the day, and I was just empty. Right. I can remember one of the things I told my wife uh, as I was processing through everything that was going on there, and I didn't even realize I was doing anything wrong at the time. But there, I remember putting my kids to bed regularly between seven and seven fifteen, and at the time I thought this is great. My kids go to sleep early. I got all this time. Looking back on it, I was putting my kids to bed at 7 or 7.15 after only being home for an hour so that I could then go take meetings with people who were struggling in their own families. I didn't realize that I was struggling in my own family. Yeah. And that's a really hard thing to come to, the, to, come to grips with. And what the catalyst that made me not only begin looking at all this stuff, but, but really buried me was when we got moved from this building. When the fire marshal came in and shut us down. You were gone on sabbatical at the time. I uh, was, we had some other, you know, other folks in that were helping. We had the, the original elders with Art and Butch. Everybody was a part of that. And I can remember getting that news and thinking, this is going to be hard. Like, we have to do a full-on shift back to afternoon services, back to set up and tear down, which we already talked about earlier. Everybody was super glad to be over, be done with. Of course. Transition all of this to APC, who was so gracious to let us do that at the time, on the drop of a hat, and do it all around Easter or the initial thought was, let's try to get back in the building by Easter. We didn't get back in the building by Easter. We, did, we missed Easter by a long shot. And the people that were here, I think, will probably remember um, that had a big emotional toll on me. Mm-hmm. 
like I felt like I personally had let down everyone because once again here's that voice I'm not qualified to do this I can't do this job I'm not I'm not capable of doing this because I can't manage the stuff I have outside along with managing the stuff I have inside Corey you knew that there were things that needed to be done you knew it and you did nothing to make sure that those things got done mm. therefore all of these people are displaced and here's how my mind works and, and this is just how I'm wired all of these people are displaced so when they're sitting at home and they're talking through this with their spouses the conversation that I hear is I don't trust those guys because clear, clearly they can't be trusted we've been tithing faithfully as we've been asked to do not just by the Lord but by the leadership of the church and now right. that money has been squandered you know what I mean going down that road and and I, I can remember trying to stand up in front of the congregation on weeks that I would preach and we were at APC and starting with updates on how the building was and not being able to get through them because I would emotionally I would I would I would you know start to feel this heavy weight of emotion and condemnation as I even spoke and here's the thing and what I want people to hear because a lot of you guys were here and a lot of the people they were in the church at that time and I would say a, a big majority of them now that I look back on it intentionally saw that that was weighing on me and that it was heavy and they sought me out and they attempted to encourage me looking back on that I'm so thankful for that because it, it changes a lot when when you know you're thinking clearly and your mind is clear at the time my thought was I know they're saying these things but they're just they're just pleasantries you know they're getting out to the vehicle getting in their vehicle and they're talking with their spouse the same conversations that I just recounted and I know now that maybe some of that was true but I know that a lot of it wasn't I know that a lot right. of good-natured uh, good well-meaning people wanted to encourage me um, so that that was the catalyst that began me actually understanding hey I'm, I'm not doing very well here yeah there were also some things you know at home with my family I began to see what I thought were cracks in this family structure that I thought was great up until that time um, I can remember feeling like man I'm a, doing great great job as a husband I'm gonna great marriage my kids love me like all these things and then this incident happens with the with the building and all of a sudden there I'm starting to see some cracks I've told you this story I'm not I mean I'm not I don't mind sharing it but I can remember taking a day off one day and uh, I had told my oldest son I had told him a couple of months before that right when the building stuff started it got hectic quick we were meeting all the time we were up here how do we fix this what do we do hiring contract all these things I'd been in a lot of meetings a lot of evening meetings and I can remember coming home one night and with really good intentions telling my oldest son, I'm going to stop taking so many meetings because I know you, you wanted me to be here. Like He wanted me to come in from work and change clothes and go throw the football and play on the trampoline yeah. and all the things that I wasn't doing. I can remember telling him that. And then a month or so later, I took a day off and I was going to take him to school. Once again, I'm, I'm living in this world where like, hey, daddy's, a, daddy's doing a great job. He's taking, I'm going to take you to school, buddy. And on the way to school, completely for no reason whatsoever other than his little mind hearing me make a promise and then seeing me not uh, do what I said I was going to do. He said to me from the, from the truck, from the backseat of the truck, he said, Dad, I, I thought you told me you were going to stop taking so many meetings so you could play with me more. So here's all this condemnation that's already on me with the building thing that I'm fighting through, trying to figure out how to manage. And then I start seeing this erosion in my family. And pretty quickly, it, it got to the point where I I really believed, and, and probably rightfully so, in, in some instances, that I was forsaking not only my duties at the church and maybe not even qualified to perform my duties at the church, and now 
I'm forsaking my duties as a father and a husband and maybe showing myself not qualified to perform those either. Mm. It was really, really heavy stuff that I, that I wrestled with. And I remember coming to you guys uh, with that. You came back from sabbatical and I said, Hey, first effort to fix this. I need to back out of the preaching rotation a little bit. Court's back. I know you're energized. You're ready to roll. Go get it. You know what I mean? And we had another guy at the time that was in the rotation. So I was able to step away from that. That's why, you know, I didn't preach for the remainder. What was that? June, July of 18. Mm -hmm. Didn't preach for the remainder of that year. Uh, toward the end of the year, there was a moment in time where I thought, you know what? I'm doing a little bit better. And we talked and, and you said, uh, well, what about jumping back in there and preaching? Well, that's great. Let's do it in January of 19. And I preached that sermon. Uh, I remember preaching the first service and between the two services, I wanted to leave. I wanted to go home and I'm not, I, I've got no shame in sharing that because once again, I don't think what I went through was abnormal. I wanted to go home. The pressure of being back up there, all of those feelings of, Hey, all these eyes are on me and they're all disappointed in me. They all, it all came back in that first sermon. Mm. And here's God's grace though. I preached the second sermon because, you know, once again, I'm committed to the things I commit to. And I also knew that if I chose to leave between sermons, I might as well throw a match on my relationship with all you guys and everything <laughs> else here. I didn't want to do that either because I love y'all. Um, and frankly, I would never do that. But it was just this this overwhelming feeling of, hey, this is something I, I might want to do. And um, I was looking back on all of that as we were kind of building a timeline. And I was trying to working with the Lord and trying to put together like what what happened to me you know during 2020 which we'll get to in a little bit and I went back on the Providence Facebook page I went back far and I found at the time we were doing the quotes during the sermons on Facebook and I found a quote from that sermon I think it was January 21 or somewhere in there 19 and under it were about seven comments from congregants about how much they well, like we talked earlier how much they enjoyed it how great it was mm -hmm. so glad you're back blah, 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 all these things and I'm like here I'm sitting here in 2021 reading that, and I'm like, how is that even possible? I wanted to leave between services. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. Like, it's, yeah. it's, the Lord is, is good in those ways. So stepped out of preaching for a while uh, toward the end of 18. Preached again in January of 19. Coming out of that, knew uh, I wasn't. I didn't want to do that. And frankly, for most of the year of 2019, even though I hadn't officially rolled off, I was in and out. Right. I, I had. January 1st of 18, sorry, I'm going back and forth. I'm trying to build a timeline, but I'd started the new job we talked about earlier, Yeah. which I knew was a lot more. There's a lot more in goes into that than what I'd done in the past. Um, I had had the, maybe the good fortune or maybe bad fortune, I'm not sure, of seeing my, my father. He also reti he retired from ExxonMobil Pipeline and seeing him work basically the exact same job at another undergrad storage facility in Dayzetta, which is the town we worked at. So I knew what was coming. I knew about the after-hour phone calls. I knew the 24-7, 365 operation with one guy that was, you know, overseeing the employees that were working there in, in my particular division. So I knew what was coming. So that began to weigh on me is not only can, am I having trouble managing all of this, but now any time that I did have is going to be reduced significantly to continue to manage it. So at that point in 2019, we decided, hey, you know, Corey, you can kind of come and go. There's going to be meetings you miss. We all understand that and, and you'll be out. And <clears throat> things just continued to, um, as 2019 went on, I, I think in a lot of ways, I just continued more and more to uh, as I, the things that I would come do that I'd be involved in and just continued to get further and further down that rabbit hole of, of being tired and being weary and just can't do this anymore. You know, yeah. I can't take another meeting. I can't have another one of these conversations. I can't 
not meet another expectation of another person that I've committed to do. And that's, Which I think it was misdiagnosis too, to an extent, because I think you and I both, as we were like walking together through this, because there was a lot of things that went on. Yeah. Obviously we had, a, we had a removal of an elder at the end of 2018. That was a massive deal. Um, and so one of the misdiagnosis, I think January 19th throughout that year is, well, maybe what you need is like time away from preaching because yeah. because at the time what you were th- what you were saying is like it, it feels like there's a capacity with the new job that's going to be an issue coupled with like adding that extra stressor of, of of preaching like I'm dealing with some things internally I think I think I'm good to be able to to pastor but just maybe not preach right now yeah and I think that what we were I think working through and walking through and missing was it the real root issue wasn't standing up in front of people the real root issue was what and the reason I think this is important to talk about and, and pause for a second is because I don't think it's unique to lay elders. I don't think it's unique to pastors. I think it's just a human issue, particularly a leadership issue, mm. and that is the tension between responsibility and commitment and expectations that come along with that, and the reality of your human frailty, weakness. Yeah. So you have on one hand. Like you saying, like, I take responsibility and, and like, honestly, that's all elder training stuff. Like we take serious, like a significant responsibility for what it means to elder. Right. Yep. And I think that's a Christian ethic. I think that's that, that what Paul says in first Timothy three, um, he reiterates in second Timothy two, whenever he says, you know, find faithful men who will be able to teach others. Also, you need to look for these guys, not just as elders, but just leaders in general, that, that they take seriously their commitment to character, their commitment to to sharing the gospel and advancing the kingdom. And so all that stuff is real. I think any good leader says that. Then on the flip side, you know that what comes along with that is people's expectations, your own expectations, <laughs> and then God's expectations, and how you like sift through those as a weak, frail human being that we know that we're sinners in need of grace. We're not going to nail it every time. We're going to fail. We all know that. But when you take the responsibility seriously and then you know that, okay, there's an expectation from the Lord, there's an expectation that I have on myself, and there's an expectation that others have on me, how do I sift through all those and figure out what's right, what's wrong, what's true, what's false, what's what's uh, maybe unnecessary expectations uh, versus what's necessary and I need to run to it? And when that all starts to kind of collapse it on, on your human weakness, how do you deal with that? Right, and, and I think that's... You know, that's a really good point. Um, and I, I want to be clear when I'm when I talk about expectations of members of the church, I, I want to make sure that everyone understands that I'm not saying that as a member, having expectations of leadership, particularly pastors, is is wrong. You should have. Well, I mean, it's necessary. Right. I think where I faltered in taking care of myself was responding properly to expectations that I could not meet. Even the ones you placed on yourself. Even the ones I placed on myself, right? So, so in essence, if, if someone needed something from me, as I said earlier, rather than being realistic and saying, here's what I can do versus what I can't do from a capacity standpoint, I would just say, yeah, I'll make that happen. And what that leads to, and this is folly that, that I am fiercely committed to not falling back into, what that leads to is saying, yeah, let's get together. Let's do it next week. Let's do it on Tuesday. And then something comes up Tuesday or, frankly, so, sometimes something doesn't come up and I just don't have it in me. And two hours before I'm supposed to have that meeting, I'm canceling that meeting. That creates a lot of churn, and rightfully so. Like if I, once again, going back to expectation of myself and what I believe the Lord expects of me, 
in those moments where I've committed, I need to be able to discharge those commitments. If I can't reasonably think that I can discharge those commitments, I don't need to commit to those things. Right. And that, that, that that's something that I've learned as, as I've processed through this. And, and here's the thing that I think I forgot, and I think a lot of people forget in these positions. There are expectations from the Lord. There are expectations from the congregation. There are expectations from one another for the position. But there's also expectations at home. Right. And if any of us at any point in time think we're leading a church and pleasing the Lord by not meeting the expectations that we have at home, we are severely off base. Well, it's like Augustine has the talk about uh, disordered loves, which I think is really helpful as a leadership principle, too, because Paul clearly lines out, like for pastors in First Timothy 3, there is an order of responsibility and care and leadership. And when those get disordered, then you're disqualified. And that's why he says the man manages his own household well. Well, what does that mean? I mean, does that mean we have, like, kids that are never disobedient? No. Like, what he's saying is there's a... There's an order of priority that people can see and say, oh, he's, he's prioritized first his relationship with, with the Lord. So the, our character only derives from that. <laughs> we, we don't have character apart. Yeah. So as a son to the Lord first, and then the household is, and then I'm a, a husband to my bride. That's a covenant God's, God's called me to make, and I can't break that covenant by dishonoring it and, and ordering other things above it. And then I'm a father. So what come what came from that loving covenant was kids and a family. And I'm a father to them. And I'm called to father them. Like, you know, the Catholic Church calling their priests fathers. I think that's what they were trying to get at here is before they fathered, you know, obviously the Catholic Church, you know, they don't have kids. But, right. like, you have father over here. So before you father the church, you have to father your home. Mm-hmm. And Augustine says that all, all sin comes from disordered love. And I think all leadership sins can come from disordered uh, priorities. Yeah, and, and disordered priorities with good intentions. Oh, always. Right? I mean, typically, right? No one shows up and says, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess this up because my, you know, my family deserves to have less of me. Or, other side of that argument, our church deserves to have less of me. Nobody wants to do that. But at the end of the day, we're all, we're all human, right? We're all flawed. We all are you know, sinful beings in need of grace and, and need to apply the gospel to ourselves, not just to those that we are leading, which is another thing that I think we miss a lot. And I know I miss a lot. Go back to the, the building thing we're talking about, all these different things. You mentioned the removal of an elder. That was a heavy, heavy, heavy burden at the time. Uh, there were a lot of, lot of nuance that came with that. And at no point in time did I ever apply the gospel to myself. Like I was really, really good about telling people how to apply the gospel. I was very bad at applying it to myself. Um, so these are all things that I've learned. And I know it's probably in, in some folks' mind, and I, I could name them off right now. I could name off 10 people right now, that during all of that, we were still attending church. We were still coming. We were still here. But people knew that something wasn't right with me. Yep. And there is a list, and I'm not even going to start naming names because I would miss some folks, and I don't want to do that. But there's a list of people that checked in with me every week. As Butch Holmes would say, they looked me up yep. consistently. <laughs> every time they saw me, they came and they said, hey, man, I love you. I want to sit down. I want to have coffee. I want to do whatever. I want to talk about what's going on with you. Or if you're, you know, if you're not okay, let us know so we can help you. And at no point in time did I take anyone up on those offers. I wasn't rude about it. I just said, yeah, it probably said what I always said at the time, which was, yeah, let's look at, let's look and try to find a time to do it. And then never, never did it. And a lot of that was driven by the fact that at that point in time, I did not even know, I didn't know what was going on with me. 
I had no idea. I legitimately felt that all of those failures and all that condemnation and all those things that, that frankly, the enemy was using to, to separate me, not only from a leadership in the church, but also from, from a thriving relationship with the Lord, I believed them all to be true in that moment. Hmm. So what I saw those meetings as was not an opportunity for a congregant to sit down with me and encourage and preach the gospel to me, which I needed so badly. Right. I saw it as another opportunity that I have to try to sit down with this guy or with this couple or whatever and try to explain what's going on, and I don't know how to explain it other than to just say I'm sorry that I failed so badly, which feels terrible, you know? So um, I'm just so thankful to the Lord for the clarity that he's brought, mostly over the last year for me. He he has really done an amazing work uh, to in in my life to bring me back, first and foremost, into thriving relationship with him, which I think at the end of the day is the basis of everything we're talking about, whether mm-hmm. it's family, whether it's congregation, whether it's church leadership. Um, he, he, and he did that, you know, almost in spite of me at times, because there were times that I was not intentionally pursuing that relationship with the Lord, but he was building the, um, uh, the, the path or the way to what he knew was the eventual end, which was, you know, once again, a thriving relation. I tell you this all the time, but we have, um, and I say we because, you know, your family is, is a part of this friend group also that, that um, I, have some, I have some of the greatest friends in the world. I have people that, friends in my life now that my wife and I have that sat with me in the middle of all of this and knew that things were not okay, but continued to sit with me in the middle of all of this if that makes sense like Mm -hmm. there was never anyone in that group personally that you know pulled away or or left or or whatever and it really proved to me in those moments that hey you know i am more than just you know someone that performs the function for these people Mm -hmm. it was a big deal for me and I, i say all the time that that same group of friends were who who the lord used to minister to me even though they didn't know they were doing it and they also used to show me, you know, to, to preach that gospel that we talked about earlier back to me. And it's interesting to me that he built that support structure around myself and my wife when I was, I didn't even know that I needed it. Mm-hmm. But when it came time to stand up and say, okay, Corey, at this point, we're going to start healing. We're going to start growing. We're going to start building the structure and, and, and the studs, I guess you could say, of the house were already there because he was building that while I was still engaged in, in, the, in the folly of thought, right, that was, that was tearing me down. You know, I wanted, to, I wanted to pause for a second. Obviously, I don't care how long this goes because I think it's really good. We're on a, we're on a good track. Um, and I'll speak from my experience, then maybe you can, you can share this because obviously I had, uh, in, at the end of 2017, starting in 2018, you know, went on sabbatical, took some time. I, I'm I'm not going to tell that whole story, but definitely felt a lot of the feelings of overwhelmed uh, expectation. Um, and I wanted to particularly say one of the things that I wrestled with was resentment. And I think that resentment can be a real, a real demon, a real, like Hebrews 12 says, see to it that no one, none of you let the root of bitterness or the, the you know, bitterness take root yeah. um, and defile many things. There's a defilement that comes with, I think, resentment and bitterness. And and I think that it comes from some, of, especially in the leader's heart, but I think generally speaking, some of that expectation that comes, okay, what does God expect of me? What do I expect of myself? And what do others expect of me? And then when I when I don't meet those, 
and then the enemy comes in as the accuser and says, see, look at who you are. The first thing that happens for me is condemnation. But over time, if you just let that condemnation settle in, what's what happened in my own heart is then I start looking back and thinking, why am I getting such a raw deal? <laughs> yeah. You know, whether it's self-condemnation or from the enemy, I'm feeling like, why am I, why am I in the death spiral when, and I think, I think that you can resonate with this. And I'll use you as an example. Why am I in this death spiral whenever I was just, you know, busting on my time off as a volunteer to pastor and to get us back in the building? Mm. Or I was just, you know, sitting down and and trying to sacrifice and take them in. And so then it becomes resentment because you're starting to go back and, 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 and look at how you ended up in this spiritual state. And you can't help but look and say, and it's because of all these things that I, that I did that were good things. And I say it's such a demon because, and it defiles many things because it's all the predicate of half truth, you know, and the enemy uses it to discourage us from actual pursuit of God and serving others <laughs> because you begin to resent others. And, and I said all of that to say, that's why I think that the key, the antidote is relationship. Yeah. Because the only thing that can stand in the face of that when you're really in the, in the bottom is someone who loves you beyond your function mm-hmm. because then they are they are a living breathing testament to that being a lie it may be true for some but that person who's always there and doesn't care if you give you know anything utilitarian to them loves you and it stands against the enemy's lie and i think that's what that's what you're getting at is like that that was already that was there yeah and that, that structure was built on you it's interesting you mission mention half truths because as i've processed through all of this thing i've thought through everything that seems so real and so um applicable at the time that it's just not ever there's this song uh, years ago uh this song by i say years ago 12 13 something like that this these two guys shane and shane that, that sing that they they have they had this song on one of their albums called embracing accusation and it's great it's one mm. of the best songs that, and one of my favorite songs of all time we've been on a kick of listening to some old goodies though i'm telling you man like we're <laughs> we're, we're getting deep in the uh the mid 2000s or the, or the mid 2010s uh, or whatever you yep. call it but th- there's a line in, in, like a bridge or a friend the song kind of builds up to this triumphant moment and and there there's a part in the song where they sing um you know the devil's singing over me an age-old song that i have i am cursed and gone astray singing the first verse so conveniently but he's forgotten the refrain jesus saves Mm. the whole the whole the whole um theme of the song is that even in his accusation satan is preaching the gospel he's just stopping short of delivering the blow of course right and and i i feel that's like i've heard that song for years and i think man it's great stuff i feel that so deeply right now mm. in this moment as we're having this conversation as i work through these things because some of the things that that i now say hey i believed and created this condemnation it doesn't mean that they weren't true right were there responsibilities that i committed to that i didn't meet absolutely should I have done a better job of, of being vocal, even if it meant that, that it may create conflict when it came to the building? Absolutely. Should I have done a better job relationally? Absolutely. All those things are true, but he's forgotten the refrain, mm-hmm. right? Like I'm not here or I'm not considering this position or I wasn't considered initially for this position because I can do it without the Lord or do it without the gospel. I'm some kind of gospel expert, so I can come in and tell you how to do it, but I don't need any help. That's ridiculous. Yeah. 
And if you don't have people around you that you can trust, that you have relationships with, that can jump into, you know, to your mess and preach the gospel to you in those moments, you will forget the refrain and Satan will use half truths to bury you. Absolutely. And that's what he wants to do. Well, from the beginning, right? That's that's what we know. And we I think yeah. we know that cognitively, but if there's a there's something else that happens when you are able to look in hindsight and say, My goodness, the the destruction that he that the, the enemy can have by focusing on the half truth. Yeah. It reminds me of Zechariah when there's the high priest Joshua, I think it says, or something of that nature. Uh, Zechariah sees a vision of the high priest Joshua when he's filthy. He's got filthy garments on. And it says that Satan comes and accuses him of his filth. And I just see uh, that that that's constantly happening in the psyche, in the the minds, in the souls of Christians. That they're regularly being accused accused by the enemy. But then I'm reminded, like, you know, Martin Luther, where he— you know, there's that, and I don't even know if it's true. It could be, uh, it could be folklore. Like I've just read it so many times, but the folklore is Martin Luther would wake up and, uh, in the middle of the night and, and the apparition of Satan would be there, uh, at his bedside. And, um, and he'd be like, oh, it's just you. He says, and he, and he would write about this and say, uh, the devil can't bear scorn, uh, that, that whenever he, Whenever he accuses me, I say, you, you, didn't, you only know the half of it. If you knew all of me as God knows all of me, you would have said all the other things that are true about me that are even worse than what you said. Mm-hmm. And then he would finish that by saying, but Christ loves me. And so he would use the Christ, Christ has died for me. Christ loves me as scorn towards the enemy. You know, that basically he, uh, he says that the, the enemy loves to accuse because it highlights our sin, but he can't bear the scorn of Christ having loved us and saved us in spite of that. Right. And so Luther was always adamant to say like, <laughs> what did he say? Like, um, sin a little to spite the devil. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> which is extreme. Obviously we I'm don't advocate you. that, but, but I get what he's saying. He's yeah. saying, um, if the gospel be true, then the gospel is the only answer to scorn the devil because he's very, he's very good at what he does. Yeah. Yeah, no, that that's true. On that note, I do want to. I know we're probably running along on time, but I, I want to make sure that all this is articulated well. So I do want to tell one other yeah. story uh, during that time, and really this the point in time that things started to to turn around for me. I don't remember the date, or I don't remember when it was. It was in 2020. Uh, you had a friend come in mm-hmm. from uh, I think it was Dallas at the time, lives in California yeah, now. AJ Hamilton's his name. And uh, the only night I've ever met the guy, never seen him again, hadn't talked to him since that night. <laughs> Might not be a real guy. That's right. <laughs> <I'm just> <laughs> <kidding>. <laughs> Sorry, AJ, he doesn't mean it. <laughs> but uh, we had some friends over at our house, and you, you and Morgan brought AJ, and there were a couple, few other couples there. And throughout the course of the night, conversations were had. Uh, we were having a good time. And all of a sudden, it feels like to me, looking back on, on a dime, the conversation shifted from small talk to incredibly serious spiritual discussion about a particular topic. And for no reason at all because he didn't know anybody for no reason apart from the holy spirit aj just began to lay out you know i don't want to talk about the specific topic or whatever but but he just began to for lack of a better term preach he didn't preach like aggressively but everything that he was saying about that topic was so incredibly true and it was emotional and it was moving for a lot of the people that were there and i was there too and i wasn't in the best spot that i had ever been in and I've told you this before, but I think it's important. I want to share this because it really yeah. was a big moment for me. And as he's speaking, the Holy Spirit was there, and it was strong, probably as strong as I've ever felt it, and maybe it's just because of the condition that I was in. Mm. As he was speaking, I was physically 
agitated by it. Like, I'm physically agitated to the point, you remember this, to the point that I at one point had to get up and walk away. Mm-hmm. And at the time, it felt normal. I was like, I don't I need to get away. I don't, I don't, that's not what I wanted to do tonight. I wanted to unplug and just visit and, and have a good time. And now it feels all serious. I got to go do something else. The more I've looked back on that, the more it has become apparent to me that I had to physically get up and walk away because I feel like, I, I truly feel like the, the, I was fleeing from, from the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Not that we can ever do that, but, but at the time, I feel like the, the power, uh, not to, and you guys that know me know that I'm not super charismatic guy, but I'm fixing to say some stuff that Real feels, Baptist. yeah, I'm fixing to say some stuff that feels that way, but it, it's because it was at the time. The, the power of whatever you want to call it, darkness or whatever that was weighing on me during that point in time could not physically stay involved in that conversation because of how powerful it was, and I had to leave. Mm-hmm. And that was the night that I began to, as I processed that, and I went bed to bed that night thinking about it. I was like, why, did, why was that? What, what happened? And I began to think, man, like this is probably, you know, something. This is, I need to, I really need to go to the Lord with this yeah. rather than just trying to trudge through it, you know, like I normally would do. And I started, I told you this, I started, started trying to pray and speak to the Lord. And it felt like I couldn't get the words to come out of my mouth. I couldn't articulate words. They wouldn't go wouldn't go past the ceiling. I know mm-hmm. there's people listening to this that resonate with that. They're like, yeah, I've been there, you know? And I remember all I could think to do, the Lord brought to my mind the verse, and I think it's in Romans, that talks about, you know, the Holy Spirit interceding for us when we don't have words with the Lord. And I just laid there in my bed, and this went on for weeks. Every night I would get in bed, and I'd lay there, and I'd stare at the ceiling, and I would just say over and over again, Holy Spirit, you have to intercede for me. Mm-hmm. Holy Spirit, you have to intercede. And just would do that until I fell asleep night after night after night and then one night there was a night that one of my kids came and climbed in bed it's probably one o'clock in the morning i'm sitting there holy spirit you have to intercede for me you have to intercede for me i'd woken up and i was doing it and one of my kids climbed in the bed and i thought okay i can pray for my kids like i want good for them i can pray for them and i rolled over and i snuggled up whichever kid it was and i started to pray for my kid and it was just this continual process where more and more as we went along i felt more and more that i could i could pray and my prayer life was rebuilt at that point in time. And my devotional life was rebuilt. And my, for lack of a better term, connection to the Lord, not that it ever went away because I've already explained how he was building all the structure for this ahead of time, felt like it was back. Like I felt like I could pray and, and that the Lord was hearing me and that I was, you know, the Holy Spirit was active in my life again. There was conviction for sin. There was a desire to sin no more right Mm -hmm. and all these things started to started to build this path to where i started feeling man i'm healthy again and and for me what spiritual health normally equals is a return to calling from the lord this is okay you know you're good now you need to here's what i want you to do yeah so i sat on that for a long time I didn't, I didn't tell you, I didn't tell my wife even when I told my wife, all of what I'm, all of this that was going on, I think at first she got mad. She was like, you went, you did all of that and you never involved me for a second. And the reason I didn't was because I was so, so serious about ensuring that this was right, that I I just wanted to hear it from the Lord. I didn't want to hear from anyone else. I didn't want anyone else's opinion. And, and the Lord started, you know, um, hitting me with like hey man you're starting to desire i started to have desires to be back in leadership i remember sitting in the prava palooza or whatever lauren called it over there and and, <laughs> and feeling a desire that hey man i feel like i feel like i 
want to preach. Like, I feel like I could preach, which is so far from what I ever thought would ever happen. I legitimately felt like the last time I walked out of that pulpit, I, I would never be back in it. Right. Yeah. And I started to feel that desire again. And, and I sat on it and I worked through it and I prayed and I asked the Lord to, to help me and, and to, to make, you know, make, sure please god make sure you know and then I, I remember even telling the lord if this happens you have to make it happen because i am not i'm not bringing this up i want to i want you to show me like if, if it's the door if it's the right door open it if it's the wrong door slam it emphatically i remember yeah. saying that slam it emphatically so i'll know and you know this went on through the end of 2020 and then obviously at the beginning of 2020 we had more difficulty here with with a you know another the issue with an elder that had to be removed. And, and I remember watching that and feeling compassionate toward you guys for what you were going through and compassionate toward the, the congregation because of all the, you know, the churn that something like that causes. And then we had a members meeting in February over at mm -hmm. North, Northeast Houston Baptist church. And my wife and I walked in and it was packed. It was like in a youth room and we had a lot of people in there and we initially sat down at a table on a side of the room that was jammed up. And I remember telling Leah, look, I can't, I can barely breathe. Like I can't find any oxygen. And there was an open table on the other side of the room. No one was at it at all, which is, I guess nobody wanted to walk to the opposite side of the room. <laughs> so I told her, I said, let's move over there. So we went over there and sat by ourselves, which, you know, was strange. But once again, it was cool and I could breathe. I, yeah, I didn't want to be packed up around <laughs> a bunch of folks. <laughs> and um, we were looking around the room. There were banners of all these different high schools. We're in a student ministry room. And there was one in particular that made us chuckle. It was a banner that just said homeschool. Yeah. And I thought, man, that's so great. And so we're, we're joking, chuck, chuckling around about, about that. And, and we started talking about my oldest son. Man, we're only two years away from him being in student ministry, which is crazy to think about. And I said to my wife for the first time, I said, well, what would you think when he goes back in there? Do you think we'll end up like, I don't know, working with students again or potentially leading students? And that led into a conversation of, I don't know what's going to happen in a couple of years, but what's going to happen right now? Because, you know, my wife, she's led the orphan care ministry here at Providence since inception. And uh, I think she had been waiting to ask me that question. And mm -hmm. that was just a good opportunity to engage it. And at the time, I told her, I, I don't know. Like, I don't, have, I don't have any plans. Like, I'm feeling healthier. I told her, I said, you know, she knew that the Lord was working on me because obviously there was a change in who I was. Right. right. So I started to, you know, I said, I don't know. I feel healthy. I feel like spiritually, like I'm, I'm doing well. I'm walking with the Lord. I, I don't have any plans beyond just continuing to nurture that. And uh, you guys came up. It was the meeting where... Ty and Brendan and Dan were announced as candidates, and you made that announcement, and um, that was really good to see. Uh, I, I've told you for years, Ty and Brendan have been doing the work for a long time. They're, I think they're incredibly qualified. Dan is a guy, much like me, that, that will be, you know, as a lay elder, uh, deals with a lot of the same struggles that, that I deal with in those positions, and um, just a really good guy, all around great dude. So I'm super excited to, to uh, I was super excited to see those guys be brought up as candidates. And at one point in the middle of the meeting, I had to go to the restroom, and I got up, walked down the hallway, went to the bathroom, and uh, on my way out, I ran into a member of our church, and I'll, I'll say his name, Josh Malone, because I want Josh Malone to know that this was an important important moment for yeah. me. Had not told anyone, did not told anyone that I had a desire to lead, had not really explained everything that was going on to anyone other than myself and the little bit that I gave my wife that night. And uh, Josh Malone, who... You know, while we're acquainted, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that we have a close relationship. We just it's just one of those things. He he's got different friends. I've got different friends, and it's just the way that it's been. But Josh felt compelled in the moment as we were both walking back down the hall to stop and say, "Hey, Corey, I just want to tell you something." And I said, "Okay," and he said, "This is exactly how he said it," and I think it's I think it's good. He said, 
I don't know what happened, comma, because clearly something happened, yeah. right, at the end of the day. He said, I don't know what happened, but, but I just want you to know that I, I miss you being an elder at the church. I miss your leadership. And, and he went into the – and by that point, I couldn't even hear what he was saying because I was thinking, this is incredible. Like, this is 100% confirmation. from Because I believe the Lord calls, I believe he leads, and then I believe he'll use people to confirm yes. calling. And I thought, man, this is, this is incredible. So on the way home that night, uh, I told my wife, I said, hey, this has been going on. And shortly thereafter, I reached out to you and said, hey, I want to run some things by you. And, and my point in sitting down with you was not saying, hey, I'm healthy now. I'm ready to come back on the elder team. Right. The point was to say, you're one of my best friends in the world. I know you love me. I want to talk to you about these things so you can tell me if am I right, am I wrong, like I'm off base here. I even asked you the question that night. I said, have I done anything biblically that would disqualify me? You right. know, we talked through that at length to come to the answer. And that was sort of when we started having these conversations, but I, I want, and I'm, I'm, I'll tell him personally someday, but I guess we'll just record it for the world. Right. I want Josh Malone to know that in that instance, he was powerfully used by the Lord to confirm, to confirm, you know, calling to yep. me, which I think is so important. You know? Absolutely. So anyway, and that's how we're here. I know that's a lot of words. It's a lot of talk. It's two and two years of my life. So it's a lot, but uh, I would not, as bad as all that was, I'll be honest with you, the place that I'm at now spiritually, particularly relationally with the Lord and relationally with my family, even though there's still things because we're all sinful, sinful people, right? I, um, I wouldn't trade any of it because of the result and not, not the result of coming back on as an elder or the result of doing anything other than the result that I can come back on as an elder. And I can emphatically tell you that my eldership at Providence has no link whatsoever to my uh, the the health of my relationship with the Lord, right? Which I think is incredibly That's important because those things get blended. We talked about it earlier. Of course, it's so a fight it's, too. Yeah, so it's a really fight. Good stuff. You know, I I wanted to maybe <clears throat> close with one more story slash topic because I think it'll be helpful. And I, you know, one of the reasons I just this is going to be long, but I think it's necessary and I think it's good is because a lot of the things we just talked about, I think people can resonate with. I think if if people knew that you and I were going to lock ourselves in a room, they probably already assumed it was going to go that's long. True. <laughs> yeah, the two talkers have to get together. So <laughs> um, I wanted to talk about something that you and I have talked about like offline personally for, I don't know, the better part of a year or two now. And that is, you know, the importance of imparting the gospel to the next generation, you know, legacy with our with our children. Um, and I wanted you to maybe just share briefly at the beginning of this year, the story that you have of, uh, you know, losing your grandmother who, um, was a woman of God who loved the Lord. You know, I was able to be there when your brother, uh, you know, uh, conducted her service and you did the graveside and just hearing the story is just amazing. But obviously we, you know, with only a little bit of time, maybe sharing like how that experience like shaped you and then. When you're looking forward at like what we're doing with, with Providence and, and leading and, and moving forward into this next season, how important you think it is of the next generation, both our students, both our kids, and and spending our spending our uh, energy, time, resources, finances on on doing what we can in order to invest in them. Yeah, so that that was a uh, my, my grandmother and I, I talked about growing up in Hull, Texas. She lived like half a mile from us my whole life. When I was a kid. Uh, my myself and my uh, first cousin, who's my mom's sister's daughter, 
every Thursday night we'd go to Memaws. We spent two or three hours at Memaws every Thursday night just to play. And I can remember, <laughs> I remember being in kindergarten, and kindergarten teacher would always ask us every day, "What are you guys doing this doing tonight when you leave school?" And every Thursday I'd throw my hand in the air and say, "I'm going to my Memaws tonight," which <laughs> shouldn't you know, as an adult, I'm like, "Well, she lived a half mile down the road. I could ride my bike, and she was my grandmother. That should have been extraordinary." But I say all that to tell you how much she meant to us as a family and her husband too my papa who passed away back in what 15 16 mm-hmm. I, mean, you guys, I can't remember exactly but um my grandmother was a uh love the lord i mean fervently she was an an old school baptist but had a lot of pentecostal blood in her <laughs> yeah. so she was the perfect hybrid of, of charisma uh, charismatic nature and uh you know and, and also fully grounded in biblical truth and mm-hmm. knew the bible backwards and forwards and, and and preached those things to us as a family constantly i we talked at the funeral about her kitchen table it was this brown circular table with four chairs that had been in her kitchen my whole life and it may still be there right now uh, even though she's passed and i can remember sitting at that table so many times in my life and her and my grandpa with the bible open like talking about the things of the lord i can remember uh, after I came to know the Lord and, you know, pretty quickly began to do student ministry because in Baptist church what you do is when there's a young guy that knows the Lord, you take him and say, okay, go play with the youths. And that, that's what I, I was doing at the time. I can remember sitting at that table and, and discussing theology with them. I can remember uh, easing into um, – uh, cage stage uh, on some things <laughs> right and and sitting down and being corrected by my grandmother mm. and told and knowing that hey I don't really have anything to push back on what at the time I don't know how old she would have been but she was older than me and I knew that she was faithful I'd seen her life I'd seen Papa's life I was like, well, what am I supposed to do right now like rebut her that's not happening you know <laughs> so and anyway so I say all that to say she was uh not only a, a not only loved the Lord, but she was a pillar in that community, a very small community. She worked at the school. There's nobody that doesn't know Janet Hunley in Hull, and nobody that Janet Hunley doesn't know. There's nobody in town that, that knocks on her door when they go over there. They just go in, and they visit. And old, older folks in town grow gardens and bring her vegetables, and she gives them figs off the fig trees. It's just, yep. it's just the circle of life down there. And anyway, she was a lady that had beaten cancer, I think, seven times in her life at this point. She was, you know, a little over 80 years old. And the eighth time, got her. Uh, mm-hmm. It was in, in her brain, got in her bones. It was bad. And the week, I got a call from my uh, mother one Sunday after church. I'd gone home and basically was told, hey, you need to get down there. If you're going to see her again, you need to get down there. And what that turned into was me spending about four nights down there because – you know, as sick as she was, the hospice nurses, everyone, they, they continued to increase the medicine, and they kept saying any minute now, any, and that went on for like four days, almost five days. Mm. <laughs> it was crazy. Uh, she's, she was a strong, strong lady. And um, watching her not just live her life gracefully in a way that indicated that she knew the Lord and loved the Lord, but watching her pass on in a way that indicated she knew the Lord was, was incredible. She... Um, she was literally could not have a conversation because she was so medicated at that point in time on hospice, but she could bring herself to pray. And when the grandkids would come in, myself, my brother, the other, the other grandkids would come in. And, and I think, I, I believe that she was cognizant enough. She knew this is probably it. We would lean down to hug her and she would grab us with one arm, raise the other arm in the air to the Lord and pray over us. Mm. That's what happened every time. 
Um, my brother showed up uh, and, and she did the same because he was one of the last ones to get down there because, you know, church require or church responsibilities and round rock things. And then he's further away than the rest of us. Right. Same thing. Grabbed him, threw a hand up in the air, prayed. Uh, at one point they were playing her favorite gospel hymns. And as she, you know, cause once again, we expected any minute now she's going to pass away and sitting there thinking, you know, it's probably the end and a hymn comes on and both hands straight, straight up in the air, <laughs> praising the Lord on her deathbed. And uh, so I watched that, and I, I was very intentional about grieving, but also observing. It was v- while I was grieving my loss for her, it was so comforting to know that she knew what was next, and we knew what was next. Yeah. I was also able to compare the difference in, in a grieving believer and a grieving non-believer. It's really interesting to watch. And if you guys know anything about me, you know that I have not experienced much tragedy. Th- this grand, I'm 30. I was 38 years old at the time. I'm still 38. Um, I, I did not lose anyone until my grandparents started passing away when I was about 35. Mm-hmm. So I went that long in my life with not really experiencing anything related to death. So I'm observing and I'm watching this. And then we go to the funeral. And this is, you know, uh, January, February time frame of this year. COVID is a big deal, right? Everybody's masking and things of that nature and not really wanting to get in, in uh, places where you're tight around other folks. And church is packed packed that was slam packed man and uh, my brother did an incredible job with the funeral incredible job talking about her my aunt spoke my mom. but getting to be there and talk to people that um that knew her that were in her sunday school class literally up until the time she passed away i went my brother and i were walking around that old church central baptist church in days that and it's old you've, you've been there twice now for both my grandparents mm-hmm. funeral and, and it, it's a bit of a relic but it's beautiful in that way too right and we were walking around looking at things, and we, we happened upon my grandmother's Sunday school room where she's taught Sunday school for I don't even know how many years. And they shut it down with COVID, and she had not been back since they shut it down with COVID. And there's a sign on the door, Esther class, Janet Hunley teacher, still there. Hmm. We go over to her piano. She played the piano and played it. She was a great piano player. She played it in, in worship service for who knows how many years, years and years and years. She'd been in that church since she was a little girl. And... Um, walk up to her piano and there's a handwritten card that she had written and like her notes on her sheet music on the piano like it's frozen in time right Mm. and the incredible part for me was watching um what what a life well lived what a legacy um left for the glory of god looks like and it really made me start thinking about man what do i what do i want my legacy to look like yeah do i want to pass away and people say, Corey was a fun guy. Corey was a really great ExxonMobil employee. Um, his family was set up for success. Or do I want people to go to my funeral and leave and say, what an incredible legacy lived for the glory of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was shortly before the members meeting with the Josh Malone stuff in the middle of everything else that I was uh, uh, wrestling through and dealing with. And it, the Lord used it to say, hey, you know, it's time to really start giving this some consideration. Yeah. And I, the reason I wanted you to share that is just because that resonates deeply with me. I, I felt that I felt that for not only for myself and, and for my, my family, but for Providence and mm-hmm. asking like the next season is asking that question of like, what do we want to be about um, the business of doing? And we've had, you know, lots of hardship, lots of difficulties. Obviously the whole world's had a lot of hardships, with COVID uh, and the political climate, but but asking the question like, who do we want to be known to be? And 
we've joked for years about how God, you know, built Providence and, uh, you know, and we look around and like, we joke about the, you know, how many babies we have running yeah. around the craziness and, but I don't find that to be coincidental. Mm-hmm. And so I just have this, uh, overwhelming sense that I've been sharing to share with the elders and share with the staff and share with anybody who will listen. Um, that that legacy question should be on our minds. It should yeah. be, it should be something that we're praying about and, and, and we should be looking at the, uh, well, I said this to Lauren and I'll just reiterate it that when we were going through the eyes full of grace series, that, that story about Jesus talking to the disciples and saying, if you offend one of these little ones, it'd be better for you to tie a millstone around your neck and throw yourself mm-hmm. into the sea than to offend one of these. And it just made me realize like we, we live in a culture that is, um, not as apt to care about where we're leading our kids. And we are committed at Providence to the gospel. And if we're gonna be gospel people, that means that our children have to be a priority, the next generation. Um, and so anyway, it just made me start thinking about legacy, like how are we gonna lead our lives? Yeah, and there was a time not too long ago where one of our most pressing issues was, can we get enough space for a big enough mom room for all the moms that are need to step, right. out, of, step out of service and deal with, well, those babies are now children. Mm-hmm. And in my case, Pre, almost preteens, yeah. about to be students. It, so the natural transition that we've known was coming for a long time is here. Um, not that, and we'll never say, I'll never say, and I, I believe this to be about you guys, we'll never say that we are the primary means of discipleship for anyone's No, child. no, no. We support parents in discipling their children as the Lord has called them to, to do. But we would, be, um, we would be remiss to not start thinking about how do we do this well, uh, how do we discharge these students at least with a gospel foundation that their parents can build yeah. upon? Because I'm telling you, and you know it, and anybody, you know, we don't live in a culture where the where the gospel is going to be preached to them outside of you know, right outside of the home, the parent, the church, things of like that. They're going to walk into a world that's hostile toward the gospel. It's coming mm-hmm. it's soon, and I don't mean hostile in like persecution in the streets. I mean just hostile in general. Like mm-hmm. it's no longer. I said this to my wife the other night. I said we're, we're entering an age where you're no longer going to win a school board election in a small town by saying on your on your information card that you're a member of the First Baptist Church of whatever, whatever. because at the, at the very best, there's indifference toward that. Mm-hmm. At the very worst, there's um, venom toward yeah, that. Right? Antagonism. That's right. So um, I don't expect my kids to, uh, my children specifically, and even our children here in Providence to, have an easy time with that outside of outside of the home and the church i think it's i think what you're saying is important we are at that place and we have that's something that we really have to spend some time and effort ensuring that we're planning god's ordering the steps to figure out how how we're going to strategize and get these things done yeah and the last thing i'll say is i think there's no way to do it but together and and said that about home groups and you know it's not like there's a you know, somebody you're going to be able to hire or leaders are going to come in. That's going to fix all that. I think it's going to be the community yep. at Providence saying, Hey, we're going to, we're going to be about this together, which means there's going to, it's going to take sacrifice. It's going to cost money, which means it's going to have to require giving. It's going to require that sacrifice mm-hmm. to say, we believe in this and we believe in it for the sake of, Hey, what are we, whenever, whenever somebody's at our funeral, what are they going to say about us? Like, what are they going to say about Providence when, when we're old and, and gray and we're hopefully handing it over to our kids or some young guy, that's going to be able to be passionate about, you know, preaching and, Hopefully they say what you said about your grandma, you know, which what, 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 what greater can be said about you than you lived your life to the glory of God yeah. and that people knew that everybody knew that, you yeah. know, and man, I'm, I appreciate you taking time. I know it was long. 
But I think it was good. I've got another hour in me, man. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just take a break, do a yeah, bonus you know, bonus hour. Part one and two. See, but that one will be trouble. See, that's, that's right. the one we yeah, have to. We, we we'll probably need to stop while it's still good. We'll put that on a different site. <laughs> Anyways, guys, thanks so much for, for joining the Provcast. Um, if you want more information about Providence and, and maybe you're not a member, you can always go to ProvidenceTX.org, check out our website. Uh, we'd also love for you to subscribe to the podcast because you can listen to not only our Sunday sermons, but uh, periodically we have these uh, conversations which are, uh, we think they're great and uh, we've had some good feedback from them so so subscribe and um, until next time we just hope that you've had uh, a good time listening to this episode and we pray that you be blessed thanks a lot Thank you.